This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. So U.S. COVID-19 cases could see a sharp decline by July if nationwide vaccination efforts continue to be successful. This was according to the CDC. President Biden talking about children being vaccinated. Tim and I covered that yesterday. Uh, and not only getting the vaccine out to underserved communities here in the U.S., but also around the world. Yeah, and we're also seeing companies and businesses, organizations, start to do different things when it comes to people who are vaccinated or not vaccinated, as we mentioned just a few minutes ago. Yeah. Uh, baseball stadiums here in New York City are going to segregate those who have and have not been vaccinated. Right, we're figuring it out. All right. So and kind of in a world that maybe there's going to be a couple different yeah. tracks. Let's get to it, though, with our daily check on COVID. Coming to us a few days earlier this week, Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone on the phone in New York City. Ian, good to have you back with us. How are you? Good. Always a pleasure, Carol and Tim. Hope you guys are well. We're doing okay. We're feeling, uh, I think, optimistic. It's safe to say, right, Tim? Yeah, we are. You know, it's funny. We just had this conversation before we came to you, Dr. Lusbader, about comfort in, in, in doing things that we did before the pandemic. And, you know, I have been driving into work, uh, but I want to start taking the subway again. And, and I'm wondering, like, how we should feel about those types of things, wearing a mask, of course, and being two weeks out from that second shot. Sure. I think you should feel more confident. Uh, I've been on the subway and watched it go from literally deserted, uh, maybe a few homeless people, to really quite crowded. So you do need to be a little prepared for possibly having people sitting next to you a little under six feet. So do not expect um, ideal circumstances, whether it's at the ball field or at the restaurant. But I do think if people have had their two vaccines uh, and they've waited two weeks, based on what we're seeing, it's much more reassuring, and I think America, unlike other parts of the world, should really, by the summer, really be able to return to a much more normal lifestyle. Again, barring any new changes, such as uh, appearance of variants that are resistant and so forth, we've really done a pretty good job at getting towards, we're not quite at herd immunity, but we're certainly getting very close to it. And I think that is all uh, really according to plan and, and going fairly well. How do getting kids vaccinated, we heard the president talk about that, waiting for FDA approval on that, but how do getting kids vaccinated, uh, Dr. Lesbader, get us towards that herd immunity? Well, I think getting kids vaccinated makes a lot of sense. You know, certainly initially, uh, we want to wait for safety data, but kids get many vaccines, mumps, measles, rubella, hepatitis B, long before they're going to be exposed to it. And even though kids generally do very well, in other words, if they do get COVID, they bounce back very well, we are seeing some evidence that maybe um, early COVID exposure may predispose to diabetes or other longer-term problems that we are not, you know, that are just beginning to appear. So I think not only... Um, does vaccinating children make sense to reduce transmission to older adults, but it may protect the kids from further complications from COVID-19 that we're just beginning to uh, see on the horizon. Do you expect that a vaccine will be approved for children ages two and up uh, by the end of this year? 
I think by the end of this year, that's that's uh, quite likely. I, I think that is reasonable. Uh, you know, again, it's not uh, an absolute rush because right. it's not like kids are the most vulnerable. But I think we want to wait for the studies and safety data. Of and I do think by the end of the year, that should be out. And I think it will become, at least for the next few years, part of a routine um, uh, vaccination schedule, you know, until we really huh. have eliminated worldwide the pandemic, which may take more than a year or two to work its way through, unfortunately. So new U.S. guidance for children at summer camps is, quote, stringent. And we heard that from Anthony Fauci, of course, the top White House medical advisor, saying today, suggesting the rules may be loosened as new data comes in. Would you send kids to summer camp? Would you send your kids to summer camp or if they were of that age today? You know, I, I would feel happier if they were vaccinated. Um, I think there's a, a, a certain benefit to exercise, fresh air, outdoor activities, and I think that can be done in a safe way, and I think the benefits of school and camp uh, in a safe environment far outweigh the potential low risk of a significant complication from COVID. So I think on balance, everything's a risk, but I think getting um, kids out and socially interacting and learning and, and all of those benefits, I think, far outweigh the very small risk of actually getting COVID over the summer. What are the biggest questions that you're getting from patients right now about what they can and can't do in the rest of the year for the summer? You know, unfortunately, there's been a lot of conflicting data, and I think people really are confused about, uh, you know, do they have to wear masks? Do they not wear masks? Um, And so what I tell my patients may not be what everyone tells their patients. I certainly feel that outdoors, there's really a minimal risk. If you've been vaccinated, there is no reason to wear a mask outside. I mean, we do see that influenza and other respiratory diseases are much lower this year. So there is some rationale. And if you want to wear a mask, that's fine. But there's really no evidence that you're going to get COVID if you're socializing, you know, not too close, you know, outdoors. I think indoors... Uh, If it's your group and your pod and people have been vaccinated, I also think that's a relatively safe environment. And I think if corporations, for example, say, you know, if you can prove you've been vaccinated, come back to the office. Many people miss the office socially, but also from a productivity point of view. I also Mm -hmm. understand people reluctant to go back. And really what I tell them is you may be reluctant, but if you've been vaccinated, there's no scientific evidence why you cannot go back to the office. Let's get right back to it with Dr. Ian. Lus Bader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Dr. Lus Bader, to the point of what Charlie was talking about, the relationship that companies have with their workers, to what extent they play in the inoculation process, and a survey from April by Arizona State University and the Rockefeller Foundation found that 65% of companies in North America plan to offer vaccine incentives to workers, 87% would inoculate workers at company facilities, but also that 44% of these companies would require vaccinations for workers. Um, A third of the companies, I should note, plan to encourage vaccines but wouldn't require them. From your perspective, which is the right move here? Is it making it mandatory? Is it offering incentives? What do you think? I like the incentive approach. You know, I think making anything mandatory 
um, that is really certainly uh, that's not FDA approved w- would be uh, uh, challenging. But I think we need to educate and incentivize people. The more things you make mandatory, uh, I think there's always a potential risk of pushback. We do a number of things that don't always make complete sense. For example, in many communities, children before in kindergarten or first grade have to take hepatitis B vaccine. That's a potential STD. The actual incidence of that is fairly low. Um, Yet in many communities, that's required. And they're not even going to need that for 12 years so or, or more, you know, when, when people become sexually active uh, or, you know, possibly even longer. So I think it's we have to really think carefully before we make something mandatory. I think educating people, incentivizing people, reassuring people makes a lot of sense. Um, certainly in the healthcare community, we do have to have flu shots, really, unless we have a whole variety of uh, effort to, to get an excuse when we're seeing patients. I think the COVID vaccines that we have make sense. I think they're effective. I think they're low risk. Uh, making them mandatory, mm, that's that's more of a challenge, and I, I would definitely try and incentivize people first. Hey, so I've got to ask you, uh, Dr. Lesbader, uh, a loyal listener and someone on the Bloomberg saying to me, okay, so what is low risk? Can you quantify it? When you say something is low risk or taking this vaccine is low risk, whether it's for adults, whether it's for kids, what is low risk in the medical world? Is it 5% temperature? Give me an idea. No, I think that's great. And, you know, we often sort of hedge when we talk about this. And uh, they, they sound like a loyal listener and, and probably have called in before, which is great. It's great to get, you know, mm-hmm. audience feedback. On, and they on like you. They like you. Things. They just want to know <laughs> what is low risk. Mean? Right. So in any individual, it's hard to state your specific risk, right? Because we don't know your underlying immune system, your underlying disease, your underlying clotting issues. But we know when we look at really now hundreds of millions of vaccines, we know the the number of cases of, uh, say, mortality, very, very, we're talking, you know, uh, perhaps, you know, a, a hundred people out of, you know, a couple of hundred million vaccines. And part of the other problem with that is there's some mortality that happens, and it's sometimes hard to talk someone who dies of a heart attack two days after a shot, what's the, would they have died from that anyway? Right. So really getting some of this data down is very challenging. We also know the effectiveness, again, out of a few hundred million vaccines in the United States, only about five or 6,000 people get COVID. So we know it's you know quite effective. So when I say low risk, I, we're talking certainly in, in single percentages of complications. If you're that 1% or 2% who develops fever or Guillain-Barre, which is a paralytic uh, condition, but we see that with a flu shot. We see that with other vaccines, and sometimes we see it even unrelated to a vaccine. So I think all we can say is we are not seeing... Uh, a, a, uh, a real predominance or worrisome numbers that would say, hey, this, this is a dangerous shot. But unfortunately for an individual, it's very hard to say what one sp- uh, person's specific risk is. All right. But you gave us some guidelines, which is good to know that it's under 10%, like it's a, a low single you know, percentage uh, rate. Um, did you have another question? Well, no, I just think, you know, from my own experience, it's just changed a lot about how I feel about what's safe and what's not. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think the more specific we can be, we can yeah. kind of understand exactly what we're dealing with. Dr. Ian Lusbader, have a good rest of the week. I really appreciate it. Clinical professor of medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center on the phone in New York. 
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So Bloomberg's Brad Stone is no doubt about the go-to voice when it comes to Amazon. Wrote a book about the company. You might recall the Everything Store. Lucky for us, he went back to do more, resulting in his new book, uh, just coming out, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. Been looking forward to this chat for all week, or actually for weeks. Let's get more from Brad Stone, Senior Executive Editor of Global Technology here at Bloomberg News. He is with us from our bureau in San Francisco, along with Bloomberg Business Week Editor, Joel Weber. And I gotta tell you, you guys, I think we're just gonna do this for 10 hours, because I just want to talk about everything Jeff Bezos and everything Brad's book. Uh, I'm just going to put that out there, Joel. I don't, I don't know if we can have Brad. I don't know if we can have Brad for 10 hours, but uh, uh, that, but we'll take him for what we get. Yes. Um, isn't, it, so, isn't this a family program? I don't know if we're, able, if we're really able to talk about the excerpt for, for 10 hours. Yeah, it might be a little That's much. That's true. Uh, so this story, um, Brad, that, that you know we, we excerpted from your book is one that kind of broke the internet when it happened, but we we only really knew um, the part that came out at the moment. And what you brought to the book and, and to the pages of Business Week uh, is is a lot of color behind the scenes and, and the great untold story of how Jeff Bezos basically took probably what was a low moment in his life and uh, used it to turn the tables. And we're talking about the the National Enquirer, National Enquirer story that um, was basically about his affair. Um, so, so how did you approach a writing this this story, and then like how did you how does that tie into the the book itself? Right. Yeah. Thanks, Joel. Well, first of all, just to put it into a little bit of context, I was about a year into writing this book, as Carol said, a sequel to The Everything Store, which I thought was going to be a nice, boring business book about uh, the last 10 years and the rise of the continued rise and domination of Amazon with a little, you know, ominous antitrust specter hanging over it. And, you know, and then Jeff tweets uh, his divorce from McKenzie and the Medium Post and the National Enquirer package. And what was left from, you know, the moment, Joel, where you, which you described as kind of breaking the internet was a little bit of a sense of ambiguity. It was like, well, wait, did the brother do it? Did MBS do it? Who? How did the Enquirer get the story? Was Trump involved? And Bezos and his his advocates were very clever, I think, in, in casting sort of political aspersions, wrapping themselves up in the mantle of the Washington Post and the journalistic mission. And so my goal as I got into it was, you know, to try to avoid, I guess, some of the sensationalism and, and but, but describe you know, what happened? How did Bezos really come out on top? As the cover says, Jeff wins. He always seems to win. Um, and what does it say about his kind of tactics? And so, you know, I just tried to talk to everyone, get close to the investigation into the whole thing by the FBI and the Southern District of New York and figure out, okay, you know, what what happened? And, and um, you know, as, as Jeff maneuvered through it, what can we learn from that? So what did happen? Did It, it, it didn't actually have anything to do with Saudi Arabia or, or, or President Trump, right? That is the question. And what I say in the book is, and it's represented in the, in the Business Week story this week, is that based on the evidence that we have at the current moment and based on the conclusions of, of federal prosecutors uh, in New York, that it, it seems like Occam's razor applies here. The simplest solution was, was, the, was the right one, which is that um, you know, the brother, uh, Michael Sanchez, uh, gave the story to the National Enquirer. Um, and there's really no evidence um, to suggest that there were any political motives involved um, and, or, or that any, any international conspiracy was involved. There, there is, 
I wouldn't say there's evidence. I would say there's circumstantial evidence that MBS hacked uh, Bezos' phone. Um, but there are a lot of questions about the FTI, uh, the, the, the agency that did the, that investigation, that uh, Bezos' camp hired to do that investigation. Um, you know, the, the spyware that was involved is very, very hard to detect. So really, they were looking at the increase in data that came from his phone mm. at, the, at the time. And, and, there's, and there's no evidence, and there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. There, there are sworn statements uh, that were filed in, in part of these cases. And there was evidence, email evidence, that shows the Inquirer getting the story from, from Michael Sanchez and fig- trying to piece together the mystery. Who was he even talking about? Discovering it was Jeff Bezos. And so, you know, where I netted out, again, may- maybe something comes out. that uh, This story is so bizarre. Who knows what could happen? But from the evidence we have, it really doesn't seem like you know, there were there were political winds blowing around this thing at all, other than the fear that AMI had that because of its, uh, you know, if the resolution of, of the Michael Cohen case and its uh, peace treaty with the Southern District of New York, they worried mm. about being accused of having political motives. And that did play a role because it forced him into, into trying to negotiate a settlement, which Bezos then accused them of, of extorting him. But other than that, uh, I think all that stuff was just noise. I think what's remarkable is that I can just imagine the PR team behind it saying, no, Jeff, don't say anything or whatever, or deny it. And like, he just comes out, you know, fighting really hard. And as the cover says, he wins. Like, it's just remarkable, Brad. And the question, Carol, is is like, was it, and, and I don't know the answer to this, but yeah. was he deliberately manipulating kind of the world, uh, wrapping himself up, as I said, in the mantle of the Washington Post, imputing political motives to the Inquirer? Was that a deliberate and somewhat disingenuous defensive shield, or did they really think uh, you know that that there could have been these political this political or international conspiracy. I tend to think that they genuinely thought um, that maybe uh, you know that maybe uh, his enemies and he does have enemies and the Washington Post, particularly during the age of Trump, made a lot of enemies. Um, uh, I, I think they genuinely thought that there might be more to it, um, but. You have to look back and nod your head. You know, it was super effective, right? We all, if, when you think about sort of what he did and the personal sort of trajectory there, people ended up sympathizing with him. He took a stand and he brought down the editor, Dylan Howard, of the National Enquirer. So it was, mm. it was super effective. Brad, what is all this episode, what do you feel like it illuminates about Jeff Bezos as a, as a business person? And Jeff just got about 40 seconds or so left. Bradman. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, yeah. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Yeah. did I say? Feel free to confuse us. It <laughs> happens all the time. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh you know, I, Joel, I just quickly go back to when the Everything Store came out, and do you remember they they didn't like the book, and they gave me a bunch of one star reviews, and and and, and Mackenzie uh, left one at the time, and what struck me there is wow, he found a totally unique way. Thinking outside the box to try to throw an asterisk next to next to that work, and I, I, you know, frankly, I don't think it was effective. But that's also what he did in this case. He thought outside the box, outmaneuvered everyone. Um, you know, came up with this this direct medium post, um, won the sympathies, came out on top. He's retiring now as an icon of business. He the the thing that you learn from this is he always does things a little bit differently, and often it is ingenious. All right. Well, our thanks to Brad Stone, a.k.a. Jeff Bezos. Sorry, you got me so immersed in it. (laughs) I just like lost myself. It's incredible. Wish you great luck luck with it. And uh, it's the cover of the magazine this week. Brad Stone, senior executive editor of Global Tech. Check out his book, The Untold Story of How Jeff Bezos Beat the Tabloid. 
insights. It's incredible. And of course, our thanks to Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor, also Amazon Unbound. It's coming out. This is Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week, and just about 60 minutes to go until the close of trading. Top story at this hour, news hit this morning, Donald Trump remaining banned from posting on Facebook for now. The company's independent content oversight board ruling that, Tim, leaving really the former U.S. president without his most powerful tools for fundraising and, you know, uh, really kind of leaves him out of the kind of political conversation in a big way. It does. Uh, The Facebook oversight board announcing that this morning right at 9 o'clock, Wall Street time, Kurt Wagner, who's based in San Francisco, was up early and he was following every move from the company. He's technology reporter for Bloomberg News and he joins us on the phone from San Francisco. Kurt, I, I sent out a tweet this morning with a poll on it. It said, is Trump going to be banned or not? You know, what, what, what does Facebook do to Trump? Does it ban him or, or does it uh, allow him back on the platform? Now I realize I should have had a third option because this is kind of like uh, punting it back to Facebook. Yeah, you should have. And, and I guess I should have, too, because I, I was definitely a little surprised by this decision as well. I mean, I guess the, the very short summary is the board basically said Facebook made the right choice on January 6th when it suspended Trump in the moment with, uh, you know, this riot going on. But they said that Facebook's decision to make that suspension indefinite uh, without any end in sight, without any kind of guidance to him on when that would uh, come to a close was not uh, the right choice because that's not something that Facebook actually has in its rules or its terms of service right now. So they're now kicking that decision back to Facebook to say, okay, we agreed with your decision to suspend him, but you can't just do it indefinitely. You got to put a timetable on this. And now it's up to Facebook to decide whether that's a permanent ban or if they're going to bring him back at some point. And the former president coming out and calling the move a total disgrace and embarrassment to our country. He says free speech has been taken away from the president of the United States because the radical left lunatics are afraid of the truth. He said this in a statement. What's interesting, what? He didn't say it on Twitter. No. And he didn't say it on Facebook. Because <laughs> he couldn't. He, exactly. <laughs> well, and, you know, one of your colleagues, Sarah Fryer, here at Bloomberg News, put out a column and she said, you know, we've got to, maybe Facebook has to expand its options on Trump. But, you know, this is not a black and white issue. And there, I guess many would argue that there needs to be, if we believe in free speech, that means everyone has a voice. And so do we need to, does Facebook, do other social media platforms have to figure out a way to allow these voices to be held, to heard, rather, to I be think, heard? <laughs> yeah, I, I think Sarah had a good point in her column and and uh, actually agreed, I think her conclusion at the end was basically, hey, you know, let Facebook, excuse me, let Donald Trump back on Facebook, but don't give him the um, kind of way to go viral that a lot of people have. Don't let people like his stuff. Don't let people share his stuff. Like, let him post there. If you want to go seek it out, you can find it. But we're not going to use Facebook's technology to promote that necessarily to people. I thought that could be potentially be a good common ground. But really, I mean, this, this is the same battle Facebook faces in every country they operate, right? How do you write one set of rules that applies to everyone in the world, including world leaders like, uh, you know, former President Trump. So I, I think this is a really, really challenging issue. And we didn't really get the answer this morning that maybe we had all hoped would kind of clear things up. Kurt, what are the repercussions of this? And I mean, in Washington, D.C., what are the political repercussions of this? Because if there is something that unites Democrats and Republicans right now, it is a disdain for, you know, quote unquote, big tech. Well, Facebook is obviously facing some real threats of regulation at the moment. And I think the issue here is that had the board simply said, hey, you know, Trump 
should his account should uh, come down or stay up. They could kind of say, listen, we're just following the advice of this outside group. Now suddenly Facebook has to make this decision uh, again, right? And so when they do, they're going to be held accountable for that decision in the same way that they are for all their content. And so I think if you're a, a Republican and they choose to leave Trump's account down, you're going to say, hey, this is you know, censorship, this is overstepping. And if you're uh, a liberal and, and they do the opposite, you know, you're going to have issues with that as well. So mm. I really just think this puts them right smack in the middle of their uh, content issues. And forgive me, just who is on that oversight board? This is a collection of uh, uh, lawyers, former journalists, former politicians. Um, it's, it's kind of an uh, impressive group of academics and, and folks who, uh, I guess, think about this stuff in some ways for a living. Uh, but they are not Facebook employees. They're meant to be independent of Facebook, even though the company did set up this board and does actually pay them through a different uh, fund that they have. Well, and it's interesting, too, because we know that political uh, social media content, I mean, this has become fairly lucrative, right, for social media platforms. Yes and no. I mean, okay. I think political content brings a lot of people to them, uh, to these platforms to discuss this kind of stuff. But in terms of, you know, uh, political advertising money, for example, it's a very, very small part of the overall revenue that these companies make. I do think, though, if you simply said, hey, you can't talk politics on, on these social networks, I mean, that's just a huge part of, of any cultural conversation. So I feel like that is where they would be hurt more than the actual, you know, ad revenue, for example. So, okay, so what's the next date we're waiting? I mean, is the, the clock ticking once again on a decision by Facebook about whether or not he is banned forever or he gets to come back? There is, yes. The okay. board uh, basically challenged Facebook to make this decision in the next six months. doesn't mean that it will be six months from now. It just means it has to happen sometime in that next six months. It could happen in theory next week. Uh, my guess is that it'll take a little bit longer than that. But, uh, yes, sometime within the next six months we should have a second answer to uh, whether this uh, account should stay up, or okay. excuse me, go back up or stay down. So, Kurt, what's the message to everybody else who's out there? I'm thinking Twitter, I'm thinking other social media. I mean, are they just kind of watching to see how Facebook ultimately handles it and then that they will determine their policies? Or, like, I just do wonder, is everybody going to act kind of as a group, to, group here? Well, both Twitter and Snapchat have said that their bans of President Trump are permanent no matter what happens with Facebook. So we can set them aside. They've, they've oh, kind of yeah. put okay. a stake in the ground and said we're not going to change. I think, you know, YouTube and others are probably looking closely here uh, because you're right. I think a lot of these companies oftentimes with the, we see with, uh, you know, QAnon or with other troublemaker users, they often kind of work in unison. Um, and there's a lot of public opinion, I think, that weighs into that. So I think whatever Facebook ultimately decides will probably set a, a standard of sorts for a lot of others. But again, Twitter's Twitter's already banned the president no matter what. So, you know, they've already made their decision. It's funny because you're smiling. It's it's funny because we all thought the story would be over, you know, either yes or no. And then here we are, the clock is ticking six months, another decision. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Right? I mean, what we've learned, President Trump's uh, presidency is, is, is never over, apparently. It, it will just continue to linger. So Safe I feel to say. like in the world of social media, he's just got a huge... Uh, got a huge tail here yeah absolutely all right hey good stuff kurt wagner technology reporter at bloomberg news on the phone in san francisco i'm driving in my car i turn on the radio how about you let me drive oh no 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 who's gonna drive you home honey please i'll do the driving drive on excuse me i want to drive just drive baby it's the question that drives us. Yeah. Yeah.
is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Just about uh, nine and a half minutes left in today's trading session. Let's get to it with Michael Sheldon, Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer at Hightower RDM Financial Group, based in Westport, Connecticut. And that's where he joins us uh, once again. Uh, Michael, good to have you back with us. Uh, how's it going? Thank you very much. Yeah, how's it going? Thanks, uh, thanks very much. So talk to us a little bit about, because it's been an interesting two days. Yesterday, we saw pressure on the tech community, and I think, once again, everybody's like, oh my gosh, what's happening with technology stocks? And then today, seems like everything is fine. So if you slept through yesterday, you would have never even known the problems that everybody was talking about yesterday. How do you see kind of what is truly guiding the trades? It, is it earnings? Is it economic data? Is it inflation concerns? Is it uh, the economic recovery? How do you see it? Well, I think what's right. I think the important thing is that we're in the early stages of a new economic expansion that started after the downturn in early 2020, and the markets have certainly staged a fairly strong advance over the past year or so, and that's certainly clear. There certainly may be some sectors or companies that are a little bit ahead of themselves, but I think if you look at some of the economic data, if you look at things like retail sales, uh, jobless claims are finally starting to improve, some of the housing data, the ISM indices. Uh, you can see they all point to a surge in economic activity. I looked at today, for example, the Atlanta Fed forecast what GDP will be each quarter, and their early read for second quarter GDP is a whopping 13.6%. Wow. So I think we all sort of knew that GDP was going to really b- jump after uh, last seeing some of the recent data, but that's certainly an eye-popping number. Right, but it also dropped off a cliff, you know, in the shutdown. So I always think we have to be smart in terms of the perspective here, No. Yeah, no, that's important. So, you know, I was looking at some of the GDP data, and the question is, we all know that we're going to see a pretty strong surge in economic activity this summer mm-hmm. and probably into the fall. Uh, the one thing we were looking at when GDP came out last quarter, just a couple of weeks ago, I think it was 6.4% for the first quarter. One of the things that we always look at is inventory levels. Mm-hmm. And the thing that caught our eye is inventories were actually drawn down. So inventories decreased by 2.6%. And what that means or the way to interpret that is the economy is expanding, but inventories were draw down, drawn down. So that basically leads us to think that there's sort of a growing pent-up demand. Manufacturers are going to have to continue to increase, increase production in order to meet demand, and that should keep the economy humming, that along with the fact that consumer savings rates are over 20% right now, and, and you see many states starting to open up. So we have a, a significant amount of strong growth over the next few quarters, but then from there, the crystal ball gets a little cloudy. Mike, yeah. our Michael McKee mentioned that about the inventory rates being drawn, uh, inventory levels being drawn down, and then that means that you're going to have to see people hire and ramp up uh, activity. And Michael, it's not just you. Um, I think that a lot of CFOs right now are, are thinking that that crystal ball is a little foggy. We do see companies in the midst of earnings season not necessarily giving guidance, uh, much to the disdain of, of investors, because they don't know exactly what is going to happen. When we think about 2021 and when, when you think about this recovery and this growth in GDP, to what extent is the recovery priced into U.S. equities right now, and, and where are the opportunities? Because there, there, there has been sort of a shrug, a uh, collective shrug, with some pretty good earnings numbers. Right. You're absolutely right. Uh, unfortunately, we're not allowed to, to mention individual stocks, but I, you know which these companies are. So I was looking at some of the large-cap technology stocks, and the, the leaders, the top four names, for example, produced 
some very strong growth of 45% in year-over-year sales last quarter, which are some pretty strong numbers. And, you know, we have a certain amount of growth in technology in our portfolios um, because we think you want to have that in order to meet your long-term investment goals since we're investment advisors. But I think even though a lot of these technology companies had very strong results, they were kind of met with a little bit of a shrug from the markets. And I think what you're seeing is investors are sort of rotating into some of the areas of the market that haven't really participated over the last several years. Um, one of the differences in this market versus the last several years, it's not just technology this year. There are other parts of the market participating. So, for example, we, we're not giving up on technology, but we also have expo- some exposure in healthcare, for example, which is a growth at a reasonable price, and industrials as well. You want to be a little more diversified this year as opposed to the past several years, I think. Well, and you kind of can be, right, in an economic recovery. That's correct. There are more areas where you're seeing a rebound in, in sales and profits over the past, compared with the past several years. And the other thing I would just point out is one of the differences we see in this environment also is, unlike the past several years where you really wanted to be massively overweight the U.S. versus foreign markets, we think this is ultimately going to turn into a global recovery. So if you've been missing out on foreign, that's, that's sort of a, not a bad thing, but you may want to take a look at your foreign exposure and maybe start to think about adding to that a little bit. Hey, what did you think of everything that happened yesterday with, with Janet Yellen? She later clarified that she wasn't forecasting interest rate rises, but it, it, it seemed to send some sort of message to the markets, to the equity markets. Yeah, I mean, that was certainly, on the surface, that certainly looked like a misstep. Um, interest rate policy, and she should know better than everyone else since she <laughs> used to lead the Fed. Right. Yeah. I wonder, I was, um, I was kind right. of joking around. I was kind of joking around yesterday, Michael. I was saying to Carol in the studio, do you think she has FOMO? Like, you know, yeah. she's kind of like... <laughs> Really misses being part of the Fed. As soon as I saw that headline, sort of, I think it was late morning, I really thought the markets were going to sell off in the afternoon. But when you think about it, it almost nothing nothing is by chance. And so that was probably Mm. a trial balloon, just Mm. to sort of, you know, the Fed and the Treasury are working together. The Fed has been pumping out $120 or $140 billion in in debt, and the the Treasury's been buying some of that. So the two are working together closely. But I think the interpretation is, that was probably maybe an early trial balloon, even though we're not likely to see any change in Fed policy anytime soon. Not quite a, a uh, temper or, or taper tantrum, um, but nonetheless, that's interesting, and that's an interesting take on it. Where don't you want to be in this market environment right now, Michael? Well, keep in mind the economy is still expanding. Uh, mm. One stat I was just looking at is, is earnings per share growth. At the beginning of this quarter, they were forecasting about 24% growth. And now, with about more than two-thirds of companies having reported, earnings estimates for the first quarter are up at 46%. So you're going to continue to see probably better-than-expected growth and better-than-expected economic data for a while. And in that environment, you probably, you probably want to underweight some of the more defensive parts of the market, like utilities and consumer staples. Those are the areas you want to favor more once the economy hits its peak and then starts to gradually slow down, which is somewhere down the road. Yeah, which is what the market's doing today. You're seeing some of those uh, interest rate sensitive. Uh, those are some of your drags on the market uh, today. Real estate utilities, they're down consumer discretionary uh, as well. Um, it's very interesting. Your focal point right now at this point, is it just the jobs report come Friday? Yeah, I think Friday's jobs report is certainly important. We're going to get a big number. Uh, the question is, does it live up to expectations? We could get a pullback or a correction, I think, at any time. But I think the direction of the economy is towards stronger growth. Mm. And we're still constructive uh, looking ahead, although there may be some bumps in the road as we look ahead. Uh, Friday, Jobs Day. How are you reading into it very briefly? 
uh, just about thinking about like what happens if, if you miss it? I think you want to look at a few things. Well, if we miss the number, it could, even if it comes in around 800,000, 900,000, I think you want to look at the Which number is of, crazy to say that's a miss, but, you know, the context you're of... You're absolutely right. It, it could be a, it could, we could be in a period of time looking ahead where earnings and economic growth is very strong, but uh. maybe it meets expectations or misses expectations just a little bit. And that'll be interesting to see what the market's reaction to that is. But I yeah. think we right. do have... Some, I think we do have we will have some continued strong economic growth for okay. probably for several months ahead. Got it. Michael Sheldon over at Hightower RDM Financial. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.